Welcome to Expert Insights. This month, we discuss working with diverse gender identities. Recorded in front of a live audience on the 27th of September, 2017. On the panel, we have Dr. Mike Scott, private practice psychiatrist, Johnny Kieran, senior clinician and accredited mental health social worker, and Cassie and Kaya, our lived experience representatives. Chairing this evening is Dr. Vered Gordon. So to start with, Mike, I might start with you. Um, there's a lot of different terminology used in this space where it's like gender, sex, sexuality. Um, it would be really good perhaps before we even start to clarify what we mean by some of these terms so that we're all speaking the same language here tonight. Yeah, well, I think that uh, is a whole question in itself because I think there's so much language um, used and the definitions vary so widely from individual to individual. And I think there's a whole lexicon yet still to develop around um, the whole um, subject of, of transition and, and gender diversity and, and gender dysphoria. And a lot of the terms used, I guess, officially are quite, quite recent. And I, I could say that, you know, 99% of what I've learnt comes from the person I'm seeing. And I think most people would say that. So they're, you know, they're, they're the real experts. The gender unicorn diagram is screened now. But this is something that's been pointed out to me um, that has helped some people sort of disentangle um, a bit artificially because everything is linked to everything else. But um, it's, it's one way of just kind of creating some dimensions. Um, and if you look at those dimensions, we all sit somewhere on those arrow lines. And, you know, people would quibble quite rightly about what even some of the terminology is there, but it certainly helps to, um, you, you know, sort of d d simplify and, and, and um, I think, uh, disabuse the notion that, you know, that old word transsexual that I think has just become so distorted in terms of what people's understanding is of, of what's actually really the, you know, the base of the issue. Um, Someone even said to me today, you know, um, sex is who you go to bed with and gender is who you go to bed as. And um, I think that that's quite true. So um, I guess the other term that, um, you know, has to be talked about is the term gender dysphoria because that's the code hanger upon which we kind of base treatment decisions and it's, it's really what actually... Um, uh, you know, gives, uh, I think, credence and, and validity to someone coming in distress who requires um, recognition by the, you know, the health industry. And, and gender dysphoria is quite a new term, and, and I'm, I'm going to read the, di the, the definition uh, on purpose, mainly because I haven't committed it to memory. It's, as I said, it's a coat hanger, and it's, it's not this hard and fast rule, but... Um, it's, it's, it's something that's only been around um, since 2013. It's, it's in the current DSM. It actually replaced the old gender identity disorder term, thank goodness, because it was just so kind of wrong and it pathologised something that uh, is, isn't a pathology. Um, so it, it's actually... Uh, to receive a diagnosis, a person must express a strong and persistent cross-gender identification for more than six months a persistent discomfort with his or her sex or sense of inappropriateness in the gender role of that sex, and the experience must cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational or other important areas of functioning. 
And interestingly, it also has what's known as a post-transition specifier, meaning that once a person actually accesses treatment, hormone treatment usually for the most part in the first instance, um, they may no longer be dysphoric, but uh, they used to be dysphoric and they can still have a diagnosis code and, and this is, enables them to continue to access care. So um, there was once also a sexual orientation specifier um, when, you know, in, the, in the sort of the gender identity disorder days when mid, in the mid-20th century doctors were actually only really interested in producing heterosexuals at the end of the day. It was this whole notion that obviously has been... Um, has been uh, debunked. The other term that I think is really important is the term that is about to be introduced next year in the ICD-11 WHO classification, and that will be gender incongruence. And it's probably a, an even more arguably um, uh, appropriate term. It's, it's certainly more um, objective. And interestingly, it's going to be moved from the mental disorder section to the conditions related to sexual health section of that, of that uh, edition when it comes out next year. And, and Kai, we started with the declaration of pronouns. Can you talk a little bit, people often feel uncertain about what pronouns to use, what to use when you're talking about someone to someone. What are the considerations there and, and why is that important, do you feel? Um, I think uh, for trans people in particular, pronouns are extremely important because it is the, the recognition of your gender by people around you. Um, and also, like, a lot of trans people have experienced changing pronouns. And if, you know, if someone uses she to describe me, it's a sort of... It's not recognising how I present myself or how I ask to be called. So if I ask to be called by he pronouns, and it's sort of validating my identity. Um, even that description that was given just now says he, his, or, or she, her... There's plenty of people now in the queer community that use they, their pronouns, like Johnny said, and that's already out of date in that respect. Um, and some people don't identify with those pronouns at all. Um, so I think it's just a very personal thing, and I think it's polite and respectful just to ask people what they like to be called, as you would like to be called. Yeah, I think in, in terms of um, feelings of dysphoria, being misgendered with your pronouns uh, just sort of exacerbates that and, and reminds you of the things that you sort of you hate about yourself. Uh, it can be quite jarring, actually. Yeah. And and um, just staying with terminology just for a bit longer. There, there are also terminology around binary, non-binary, gender fluid. Those terms that. Uh, sometimes used. What's the meaning of those? So um, I guess there's lots of different languages within the community and we're not always going to get kind of 100% right. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, the, I look at kind of gender diversity. Some people identify as gender diverse and that will be on a, some kind of spectrum of, um, of gender. We look at male at one end and female at the other end. Within every spectrum, of course, there are binaries, uh, with male being one and female being another. A lot of people would fit somewhere in between, um, and maybe fluid at various times, uh, either in their lives or sort of throughout periods of a week or a day. Um, <clears throat> I often do I do some training with health professionals, and I would ask health professionals in a room, and they can put this to everybody in the room now, um, to sit if you were to look at a binary. Uh, 
a spectrum or an axis of male to female and look at where you identify yourself on that. Um, if you were to really have to pinpoint um, where, um, and my experience in speaking with staff and, and colleagues around this has been people will be quite confused by that question. It depends on their backgrounds, uh, on their cultural context of what male and female meant. It will also depend very much on, um, they'll say, well, depends who I'm with and what I'm doing and where, and where I'm at. And different times in my life, I may have moved in that. Um, so that's a little bit about that, about that construct. And also, um, I would say some people are very clearly identifying as non-binary and just don't want to fit in either. And we prefer they or their pronouns. Um, yeah, so it's about kind of affirming, really, that there is a broader spectrum and a less binary way. Well, that's, that's really helpful. Um, so, Cassie, I might check with you. What's it like to present to a health professional with, with, um, to discuss your gender identity? What, what has that process been like for you? Um, <clears throat> all of the lead-up to, to going into the office is, is terrifying. Um, it's, it's a very frightening process, really, and, it's not, and I don't think it's necessarily the medical establishment's fault. I think, you know, society has just made it in such a way that this is not something that you, is a, a generally a comfortable experience. Um, but upon coming out to my psychologist, who I'd known for a, a year, um, I, I found the help to be very good, and I was extremely relieved uh, and in fact, the more people I told, um, the better I felt. And, and there was a lot of support for me from various um, people in the medical community. Uh, but there was also sort of some ignorance there as well, not, uh, not maliciously, but people and, and professionals didn't really understand um, what this meant, how to deal with it. Uh, a few people had to go away and research it and then come back, um, which surprised me a little. But uh, I think through prolonged exposure to each other, we were able to come to some workable arrangements, and I, I think that's probably the shape it's going to take. And so maybe both of you, Kai, as well, if you want to hop in on this one, so what are the things as health professionals we need to attend to to make it a good experience for you to come into our offices and disclose yeah. some of these things? I think actually the, the general experience is, is quite negative at first. Um, like, I'm really glad you had that experience, but most people <laughs> I've spoke to have come through, and I myself I had some pretty awful experiences at first, and then sort of moved towards like mediocre but quite sort of damaging experiences. And... Now, and I, I mean, I came into this like relatively privileged in the sense that I expected respectful healthcare. But after my initial experiences, I realised that I had to be very proactive in finding it. Um, and now, now I have like a dream team, um, and I, I really have excellent healthcare. But it's it, it is terrifying to go there, and then to have a negative experience is is quite crushing. Um, and I would actually say that it's the responsibility of the medical profession to provide good health care to everybody. Um, there's many things, I think, that can be done. I think it should be approached in, in, in different ways. I think you should approach it, uh, number one, is accessibility. So, you know, 
we know that trans people have high rates of social anxiety. We know that trans people often have anxiety around their voice. So what you can do is have a website that shows an option to book an appointment that doesn't involve making a phone call. Um, you can train every, I think, look at the whole experience. You can train your receptionist to understand about names and pronouns. You can have all gender bathrooms in your facility. Um, and then you also have to learn about respecting people's identities. So know what, know what this means. Um, know that when someone presents to you in this way that they have certain anxieties about their body or they, they see things differently than you do. Um, so if you have to do a physical examination, for example, if you're aware that maybe trans people might not call different parts of their body by the same names that you might expect, um, it's always better to ask. And I think um, also, <coughs> I, I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but having, giving the advice that you give must be based on evidence. Um, one of my worst experiences was being given a, a piece of paper which was an informed consent, um, informed consent form about starting testosterone treatment. And amongst other things, one of the things that it said is that um, after five years or treatment, uh, we recommend a full hysterectomy and nephrectomy um, because of an increased risk of cancer, ovarian cancer, and other cancers. And that, I mean, it's terrifying enough already, but then to hear that, it makes the process even scarier. Then on my own research, which I am able to do, which a lot of people aren't, I found that this is actually not based on evidence. It's not true. It might possibly be based on... Um, an outdated HRT uh, method for postmenopausal women, cisgendered women, but it's not actually true. And the, I think you know, recommending a, a major surgery like that um, before anyone's even started treatment which is uh, unethical. Um, and that happens a lot, and it's quite a common myth. So evidence-based practice, professionalism, knowing what you're talking about, I think that's sort of step one. And Mike, um, Kai's already alluding to perhaps some of the mental health correlates um, in sort of gender diverse population. What do we know about kind of the mental mm. health aspects of that? Well, actually, it's interesting that we're having this talk tonight because I think it's just been earlier this month, a study called the Trans Pathways Study was published. And it was, I think, in um, conjunction with the Kids Institute. It's the biggest study of of trans adolescents and also involvement of parents. Uh, I think there are something like maybe seven or 800 involved. And it was, you know, found that something like, you know, I think it's, you know, 80% suffer from clinically significant anxiety, depression, about half. And this definitely maps on to the people I've seen and the many histories I've taken. Roughly half have really been suicidal to the point of planning and, you know, action or, or, or failing. Um, um, Self-harm is, is, is right up there as well. Um, yeah, and, and as Kaya said, I think, I think the social anxiety is absolutely crippling and, and the social withdrawal is, is <coughs> enormous. And um, one of the other sort of uh, things that came out of the study were also things that I see that people find, um, you know, ways to sort of assuage or, 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 you know, the, the sort of the salves that they, they find um, uh, in, include, you know, things like pets but also social media. And, and one of the most prominent things that comes up um, when I speak to people is um, uh, 
is video games and people actually find that they can uh, use an avatar of the gender that they're comfortable with as a kind of a window of escape and they'll spend, you know, well, I mean, we know that this is a, a wider problem, but, you know, 10 hours a day and, and, and you know, a, a problem like that will disappear once they're, they're enter into a you know, sort of a process of gender alignment or correction. Um, one of the things that wasn't mentioned, I thought, inter interestingly, in the study's findings were drug and alcohol, drugs and alcohol, because that's obviously another huge way that people uh, try to you know, self-regulate in terms of their moods and their emotions. Um, and, and that's something that I see, yeah, all the time as well. Yeah. Can I just say something that I feel like um, a way of looking at treating transgender people is to separate out the sort of body dysphoria from the mental health. And you can, I think it's, you can view the body dysphoria almost as an endocrine issue that is highly treatable and highly effective and easily diagnosable. And then I think the mental health is actually really just the fallout from being part of such a marginalised community mm. and the societal sort of disgust and discomfort. The kind of psychosocial kind of outcomes and, um, I guess situations people find themselves in who are transitioning or are in the process of transitioning and or, or pre-contemplative rather um are really pronounced so um i might talk through some of those now and that i worked with i think my youngest um was 12 year old and up to up to about sort of 70 years old as well in terms of the, the population um and i mean if you think about um, anxiety, as Mike was discussing, the kinds of anxiety around coming out as trans are just, you know, really not to be underestimated, um, as, you know, yeah. you're referring to as well, Cassie, especially if you're 12, and um, there's a whole lot to be, um, to be lost, a whole lot at risk. <clears throat> so, um, often people experience or begin to experience gender dysphoria around puberty time when they, their body is developing, and um, they will feel a real incongruence with that sense of um, who their what their body is developing as and who they want to be or who they how they identify. It's really really distressing, and all these sort of symptoms come about consequently. Um, so there's there's this real um, often this real kind of um, I guess dilemma around um, which is greater the gender dysphoria. Um, or the um, the risk of what I might lose if I can come out. Yeah, it, it certainly is a choice. Can I live through this or can I not? Mm. And I think that's sort of what it can come down to in the room when people, when coming, coming to see people like us is one thing and then kind of coming out in therapy another and then looking at how to kind of come out to the broader community or parents is a whole other thing uh, altogether. So, you know, just non-conforming with any gender binary role depending on the context you're in it's, it's a major, major thing. I, I, I worked for eHeadspace for a period, which was online therapy service across the country, and we're very fortunate in Sydney to kind of at least have access to more resources. But without those resources around and somewhere much more rural and remote, um, young people and, and older people, but I was working specifically with younger people, are just, you know, there's no one around. Um, there's a lot of isolation, um, family rejection. Some people... Um, who get, receive family rejection at an early age might go to social services. Social services are very binary gendered and they might not conform with the social service system. There, you know, there are some studies in America around 
um, that then resulting in the kind of um, entering the, the criminal system or legal system um, as a result, um, all because of kind of the sort of um, the way that the social kind of constructs are formed around gender. Um, so really big kind of um, Im implications. Um, I think one of the thing, a lot of the things I see here in terms of um, psychosocial factors will be um, just opportunities for employment are reduced. I think I've kind of got some stats. I don't like quoting heaps of stats, but it's really remarkable. Um, I think um, yeah, forty-one percent unemployment rates in one study, um, which is really really huge. Um, so you don't have as much money. Um, our people that are in employment are less likely to be um, to be promoted in that employment. Um, so less. Um, Kind of potential being met. Um, this is on top of kind of the treatment costs, which are phenomenal. Um, uh, that are sort of generally self-funded um, entirely. Um, Can I just and, say something sorry. about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I actually read in a in a really fantastic. It's like a textbook, and it was actually Kaya who um, introduced me to to the book uh, Trans Bodies, Trans Cells. Oh yeah. And uh, there's a lovely quote in there uh, from someone saying, you know, it's in all of our interests to to, to sort of solve this this issue and, and get people to where they need to be as fast as possible because um, we need to shift people who are struggling with and grappling with it. We have need to be able to help them shift their focus from, from this to becoming the rocket scientists and the authors and the, you know, the teachers that they're, they're meant to be. And I must say one of the things that I love about working with this group is that they're just such a tremendously diverse... Um, and inspiring group of people. I think they've been through such um, enormous um, hardship very early on and had to face questions about themselves and their intrinsic selves that most of us never have to in our whole lifetimes. And I'm constantly stunned by the level of maturity and, and empathy, actually, empathy of, of people as young as sort of 16 and 18 who are, who are sort of explaining why it is that their father might not be reacting quite appropriately because, you know, He's been conditioned in such and such a way, and you're sort of thinking there, sitting there, thinking, "Gosh, you know, where is this coming from?" But they've just, you know, it's the sort of the school of hard knocks, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I've learned so much from this area, and it's also been really difficult at times when you're seeing people kind of without access to services, um, and some of the kind of like longer-term kind of um, implications of this kind of social, like psychosocial these psychosocial factors which could lead to like real kind of like loss of income per diet per health outcomes generally speaking as well as sort of happens with anyone in lower socioeconomic kind of groups um, sometimes sex work is a preferred option and sometimes it's a less preferred option to manage this and um, I think that's something that needs to be kind of worked and supported with as well um, and um, yeah I think just access to services um, can be limited as well um, you know as well as a whole lot of kind of great services that are out there that we can talk about. There's also a lot that are not very accessible and that there can be quite a bit of stigma in accessing people just not ready to knock on that door. I think by every social measure, transgender people f like fare very poorly. I mean, if you've got a community that, I mean, if you guys imagine a school that you're a member of or a church or a mosque or a school your kids go to, and if you imagine that half the people in that community try to kill themselves. At that point, it, it's a moral obligation to do something and do what you can. Mm. Yeah, it's palpable, the, the anxiety. The, from the second you walk out the door, and, and if you're lucky, 
when you get home, it stops. Not everyone is that lucky either. There's, there's also sort of family rejection, as you were talking about before. Um, yeah, and you, and you become actually, uh, or I at least, I'll speak for myself rather than everyone, uh, have become quite paranoid, especially in, in recent times with the, with the climate as it is. Um, I've, I've started to wonder, is, is that stranger on the bus, the anonymous person on the internet who said this and that about what they want to do to trans people? And you start to see things everywhere that just make everything you do and a totally unnecessary challenge. Yeah. I have a client who I haven't seen for about for quite some time because they were just not able to get on the bus to come see me as well. Um, and part of the reason for that was because they had to basically dress in a gen like in their assigned gender at birth to feel that they could be comfortable to get on the bus. Yeah. Um, so things like that are just uncomfortable for them I'd, as well. I have you know? started turning um, it down recently because I'm, I'm terrified of what will happen. The postal survey has been yes. brutal. I mean, like, really? You didn't always know what everyone thought, and now you do. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, I wish got, I didn't. Like, I mean, you've got the whole no campaign harnessing transphobia against marriage equality openly on national television national broadcasting and it's it, the message is that that is acceptable to broadcast outright transphobia well that's the implication being that we we don't even have to say why that's bad you should just know that it's bad to end up transgender that you you don't even have to justify that that's a bad thing yeah and, and that's jeez that's awful and then even the yes campaign are saying um trying to distance themselves from transphobia, trying to, like, keep the transphobia away just to, like, focus on the homophobia because that seems somehow more manageable. It, I don't know. I found, I found the whole thing incredibly isolating. And, and I think, you know, the term the same-sex marriage is, is, is also wrong. It's actually marriage equality, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, do we know anything about how gender identities formed? Do well, we have any understanding of I, that? There was a really interesting issue in of all... Mag of, publications, the National Geographic in January this year. I don't know whether anyone saw that, but there was an entire issue devoted to gender. And there were a couple of articles, and one was some of the early research on, I think, the X chromosome, some of the sites. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all in its early sort of stages. But as, as someone has said, you know, we don't have any uh, explanation uh, sort of in terms of psychological or medical for what causes um, trans, you know, transgender people any more than we have any explanation of what causes cisgender people. And cisgender basically means, you know, that you are aligned biologically with the gender identity that you also carry. So it's, I, I think it's a really interesting thought experiment to, to flip the numbers and, and to imagine what it's like to be in a world of trans people. And, you know, it's a little bit like a fish who swims in water who is so used to the water being transparent that it doesn't actually realise it's water until it gets lifted out of the water into the air. And I think, you know, there is a sort of certain truth in that and, and a metaphor, which isn't mine, by the way, but um, it's something that I've come across almost universally when I speak to people who have a really, you know, kind of long-standing, I mean, uh, you know, uh, memories from early childhood of, of something being off, People often sort of use words like that. 
Um, and I think it, a, a sort of a, it, it's a concept that comes from psychoanalysis and it's, it's, it's um, termed the, the unthought known. And I think it was a guy called Bollard in the 1980s who sort of coined this. And it's probably based on something that Freud talked about. But it's essentially when you know something but you've never thought it, or when you know something about yourself, particularly, but you've never said it. And so many people will come and they'll say, you know, it was only when I was 16 that I've discovered that trans was a thing, you know, a kind of a, a thing, a, 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 a phenomenon. And before that, it's just this really amorphous... So, and, and you know, often their first exposure to a school counsellor or psychologist will predate that. And so they'll spend, you know, six months thrashing this dead horse in a way, which is their anxiety or the depression. And it's only later that they realise that everything, a bit like what Kaya was saying, you know, cart before the horse, uh, is, is sort of traceable upstream to that. So it's very difficult. And, and I, think the, um, I think the publication that's been so pilloried, the um, uh, Safe Schools, was it? With, you know, the, 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 yeah. the, the education about, about uh, uh, gender diversity is, is just so essential for that reason. Um, but also, I think if we're starting to talk about causes, uh, and, and I think about this a lot, I think as, as a scientist, I think it's fascinating to see, you know, what causes, how people turn out. But I think it's also really important to keep that distinction away from the, the political side of things where it, it doesn't matter. Um, trans people exist, and they have a right to health care, and they have a right to exist comfortably in society. And, and, and we don't need to get lost in the causes, but we can examine them from a scientific point of view, um, just not a political one. Yes, it's, it's a question I ask myself a lot. Why, why did this happen? But also, I think, to go slightly further even, is if the fear is if you answer that question, then there'll be a way to stop it from happening. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that quite terrifying because now I feel like I wouldn't want things any other way, really. And um, I might check with you, Kai and Cassie. One of the decisions that people often have to face is um, whether to transition, how far to transition. What's involved for, in making those decisions? What are the things that you kind of have to think through or come to terms with? Uh, <sighs> making the initial decision was, was quite... Easy. I, I knew what I hated about myself. I knew what made me sad. I knew, like, for years, uh, what had sort of tormented me. That I, I, that now after coming out, I was free to to change. But then things occur to you after that, as you get further down the track, which are not often spoken about, I think. And I, I, I wonder if this is a common thing to the trans community. This is certainly something that, that happened for me, is that I feel scared to talk about my doubts because I feel like if I'm not committed enough, if I'm not single-minded enough, maybe this will be taken away from me. And so even though I have doubts, as anybody should, about a major life-threatening surgery, potentially, um, I I won't express them because I feel like that gives fodder to our detractors and I feel like it, it gives fodder to a medical establishment which may be a bit shaky on the issue and may decide to withdraw uh, medication. And so for me personally, I don't 
talk about those things, and I wonder if that's true of a, a lot of people. In I, I think it's definitely true of a lot of people, and it was actually advice I was given on approaching the medical institution. I was given advice from older trans people to actually stay away from the medical institutions and do it on the black market. Yeah. Um, and then from anyone else in, in my generation, the, the advice is to go in with absolute complete certainty, to, to <coughs> give yourself access to these health cares that you need. And I went in, I, I read that DSM-5 before I went anywhere. I, I, I knew exactly what I needed to say. Yeah, so did I. Um, and it was only in situations where I felt I was being listened to that I divulged any kind of um, concerns, of which there are many, because for one, there is no, for example, no longitudinal study on transgender men under testosterone treatment, which I find alarming. I mean, by the time you come to the point of medical transition, there's something in your life that is untenable. And so you're worrying up, do I live without it? Do I live with it? What are the risks? The risks are, are, are largely unknown. And um, expressing doubt takes confidence, bravery, and entitlement. And a lot of transgender people do not have that. They have a negative relationship with the medical establishment and they say what they need to to get the treatment that they need. And it, it's often still denied. And it's, it's um, I mean, even, I mean, I, I, the first time I approached, I actually just wanted a mental health care plan because I knew this about myself and I wanted to discuss it and talk it through. And I had to go four times. And any, four times to the GP to get the mental health care plan. Whereas if you look at the statistics, look at the data, anyone who is gender questioning is incredibly high risk. And I think everyone should have that from the get-go. Um, doubts are hidden by many people and, and with, with reason. And um, it's a logical thing to do a if you seek treatment. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people I've met <clears throat> have um, talked about going to medical professionals with this very, I guess, another binary way of kind of going, this is what I yeah. want to be like, this is how I, how I identify. So if you're assigned male at birth, going, oh, you know, I have to fit into this kind of almost stereotypical idea of what it is to be female. Um, and that comes, I read that in a study, again, in America, um, where people had to kind of almost conform to like a 1950s housewife kind of yeah. model of what it is to be female, which is still not even current, you know? I mean, it's a self-perpetuating um, thing. Yeah. <clears throat> but people, it's from desperate people. Yeah. You know. yeah. And, 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 and professionals who might misunderstand as well. Yeah. And sometimes even that kind of pressure from within the community. Yeah. Um, and I, I knew that there was, uh, not now I don't think, but there was at, at, at some stage um, a, a proviso that you, you had to live in the gender that you identified with for a full year. And so I was like, well, well what does that mean? How does, how does a woman live? You take this incredibly diverse group of people and say, live like, like that. And it's often there's subjective. just no way to do it. So the only thing that you really can do is become a stereotype. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and risk your safety in many yeah. cases. And risk your safety, <clears throat> of course. And I, I've... I've, that's when I have met some people who have felt so unsafe that they've decided that the safety risk was higher than the the the, the gain, yeah, and the transitional, the, the gender dysphoria um, was sort of preferred almost, which is really sad when you kind of see someone that come in down the track, um, kind of in their assigned gender at birth, not happy in that either, but this, the societal structures have meant that 
they've had to kind of go back in their process. Yeah. There are points, um, I, I guess, where you, you feel like you can't go forwards and you can't go backwards. Like, um, and I suppose uh, it's, you're talking about people who detransition would be um, probably a relevant thing to cover as well. And detransition being something quite different from someone deciding to withdraw from their transition because yeah. of social factors around them, yeah. you know, um, and because of the kind of immense pain and suffering they're going through in that mm -hmm. transition process, um, could be misunderstood as the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you talk about diagnostic rates, compare it to any other condition, and it, it, it's, it's highly successful, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the beautiful parts about the work is when kind of working with someone um, who's started hormone treatment and just seeing how just this, this sort of this morphing of kind of the person that they're meant to be, you know, and it's really evident <coughs> in the work and a lot of people don't get to see that so much. And, um, and I actually think of it as a kind of evaporation process that so many of the mental health symptoms just evaporate, yeah. they just disappear. That happened for me. Yeah? Yeah. A, a, a lot of my depression and anxiety went away as soon as I'd started transitioning. And Mike, you're involved in making assessments around transition. What's involved with being assessed for well, transition I, these I, days? Yeah, well, one of the things I still have to say to people who are just covered in sweat and absolutely, you know, terrified is that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, what a, a support person, not a, not a gatekeeper. You know, you don't have to jump through hoops. You've come this far, this says something really major, you know. I'd, I'd, I'd take a history. I often take a prehistory, actually, if I speak to them over the phone first or have an email exchange, because actually what Kaya said just now was, was interesting. I think people really do prefer um, to um, sort of meet by email initially, and um, I can see kind of why that is now a little more. I mean, I know the voice thing is, is huge, but it, it's, it's almost universal. Um, and... Um, Yes, yeah, so uh, in, in terms of people coming in, you know, the way I see it and the way I usually explain it is that, you know, I, I'm, I'm meeting the person where they are. Um, I'm really interested in kind of, uh, in, in, in kind of connecting to, to where they're at and where they feel they need to go and where they've come from. Um, and so that's essentially the history that I take as, as they give it. It's usually over about an hour. Sometimes if they're... Yeah, usually for someone who's 20 or less, I always really uh, strongly encourage a family member, a parent, or a, 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 you know someone who they're close to to come as well. And um, I ask them to join us at the end or occasionally separately. But um, for me, it's, you know, to my mind, it's a mood assessment and it's a capacity assessment, a decision-making capacity specific to the decision that the, they're, they're they're coming for. You know, there's also factors at play where you don't know if you're going to pay for this appointment. Um, a lot of you know, trans people are unemployed. It's, um, it may be bulk billed or it might not be and you might go to another psychiatrist that um, charges you $360 a pop and they might make you come back four or five times to get this letter which enables you to get treatment. So that's, by anyone's measure, a grand, two grand, you know, is, makes things completely inaccessible and some people just can't do it. And you don't even know if you're going to pay or not before you show up, which I'd recommend sort of saying, as all medical practitioners state from the beginning, the costs that are going to come up for this person. Mm. Um, maybe on that note, uh, I would mention PSS to people who might not know that. It's previously ATAPS. 
um, which is a funding stream that allows up to 18 sessions of therapy with a PSS provider, of which I'm one, um, for, yeah, without, without cost. I'm particularly struck by the high rates of self-harm and suicide attempts mentioned earlier. I'm interested, when you have found yourselves in a very difficult place, what steps, either of your own or with the help of a psychologist or perhaps a psychiatrist, have helped you most to move forward? Um, I actually haven't had heaps of input um, from professionals on how to overcome that. But I have found, both through my own experience and through talking to other members of the community, uh, music is an excellent way to overcome um, feelings of, uh, of defeat. I, th I think it's a good way to remember that this is a, a really cool and exciting thing to do for me. It's, if, from my perspective, Basically, all civilizations come from a dichotomy of male and female. And so the ultimate anarchist act is to subvert that. The greatest work of art. It's the greatest work of art. And there's a, there's a sort of a, there's a, there's an alchemy to it, you know? And I, and to remind myself that, I find it very, very helpful. It, it, it encourages me and it makes me feel strong. And, and one of the ways that I achieve that feeling is through music. Um, I think things that really helped. I think for me, my most vulnerable times were just prior to treatment, which for me was or medical HRT, which for me was um, uh, thrilling even. <laughs> um, and in terms of professionals helping, I think just knowing that someone's waiting for you there in, in a week, you know, and and then also, and, and cares and knows all your deepest kind of flaws, but sort of cares about you. And then also, uh, for me, a huge one is community. Um, I'm very involved in the queer community. I have a lot of queer friends. It's uh, a, a great space. It's, it's where queerness is celebrated. Um, and people understand where you're coming from. They know what your story is and, and what matters to you. And, and they understand your perspective on uh, the sort of societal violence you experience. Um, and also, you know, once you get to the point that you can celebrate your uniqueness, it, 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 is, it is wonderful. Um, and you, I mean, some things that I enjoyed reading was about transgender histories. Uh, transgender people have been around forever. Uh, there's lots of documented evidence um, looking back at indigenous societies where transgender people were actually uh, revered <laughs> and sought out for advice. And if I think about it in that respect, it's only really an accident of time and geography that you're not coming to us for help, um, <laughs> to be honest. What could we in the helping professions do better that would make a difference for people of diverse gender identities needing our help? The, the key problems, I, I feel, for us, the things that I keep hearing over and over again, uh, things are unnecessarily protracted and prohibitively expensive. What we need are medical professionals to lobby, I guess, for 
it's greater. We just can't afford it. And there must be something that can be done, maybe if we, if we band together and pressure um, for, for Medicare to, to, to make this more affordable. Because it's, it's bankrupting us. It, like, something like 25% of us live below the poverty line. Um, I think there's a lot of basic etiquette you can learn, the names, the pronouns, the identity, respect, etc. But like as Cathy said, I think also, you know, I think everyone here has a responsibility to advocate for us too. I mean, the, you are the conduit between the state legislation that, for example, that says that surgery is required for a changing of your gender marker on your birth certificate. Yes. Um, that is being ruled a human rights violation in other countries. Sweden has just offered $18,000 compensation for every person who did that. And you are enacting that on behalf of the state. But, so you have to kind of turn that state violence around and treat people with respect and advocate for them and look after them because you, someone has, we have to trust someone. And, They'll and, listen yeah. to you. Yeah, and, and like, you know, there will come a day when you have a trans patient who, wants to cha- who has had surgery, sexual reassignment surgery, and, um, and they, you need to sign a form on behalf of them telling the state that they have had this surgery, which is by a JP, signed by two doctors. And, you know, the trans person has to sit there and go through that humiliating experience, and you are that person. It's a huge responsibility, and I just... I don't know if there's no like, easy rule we can just sort of say, do this, do this. Just like treat people with respect and think about what you would want to experience. It sounds like the most simple thing, but it's, again, something I see not being used <clears throat> is um, asking someone their preferred pronoun, but then using it when they're not in the room. I also understand that, you know, it's a process to shift what is for many people who've been, you know, steeped in this gender binary and enormously entrenched cognitive dissonance in terms of being able to, you know, process so much of this. And, and you know, when you, when you um, yeah, when you've just been kind of conditioned and moulded um, in, in one way, it, 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 it takes time. And I, I see families and parents struggle and come through the other side and it's, it's a, you know, it's a sort of joy to behold, but it does involve some really difficult shifts. And the danger is the health or the um, psychological sort of services reenacting that kind of binary um, kind of um, enforcement and expectation on the, the client, which is kind of just sort of you know making it all happen like history repeats itself. Um, yeah, there needs to be more training for sure. How would you go about helping someone who is asexual, meaning they don't find themselves attracted to anyone? I strongly believe there's a percentage of the population. I have a couple of friends, actually, who I would describe as asexual, happily asexual, um, and they have very live very full and active lives. And I think it is a, 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 a you know, a, a percentage uh, of, of the population that has been under-recognised, and obviously because they don't fulfil, you know, all these kind of life scripts about partnering and having children, they just keep quiet about it. But it's much more widespread than I think we, we think. Often this kind of discussion tends to happen. We're talking about gender diversity, uh, a question about sexuality comes up. And whilst it's curious to talk about, I think it's also really important that we separate the two very clearly, as I'm sure you're aware, just for the broader audience. Um, I've been sort of at previous conferences where people kind of start talking about um, 
about sexuality and a sort of in this space. I think we need to kind of honour it as being. Do you know where I'm coming from? Yeah, um, I think it does raise quite. It does raise some questions. Yeah, uh, um, there's. There, that means, for example, around sexuality. If, we, if, you, if, if one is disconnected with one's body throughout the kind of period of um, puberty, for example, then we're not going to be so able to kind of develop sexuality or evolve sexually. And also the concept of, you know, you're presented with an identity that you don't understand is the whole premise of this talk. You know, people and asexuality is an identity that people say that they have and it's a word they use to describe themselves. And, and there's, there's many words that, you, like asexual, aromantic, sexually repulsed, you know, there's words out there that people give people meaning to how they feel that they are. And I think the, the most important thing is to listen to people's description of how they identify. And if you don't understand it, try and learn. And, and I think probably one of the crucial things too is that, you know, someone can be happily asexual or someone can be suffering, uh, yeah, distress, dysfunction. That's the big difference. I'm curious to find out more about times when a person has a complex trauma history, how this would affect assessment and treatment. A lot of the work that I do um, in, as a, in psychotherapy I'm trained in is looking at trauma history relationally and understanding sense of self um, and different sort of relationships that we have with self. Um, so I suppose it would, it would, it would be, I'd bear it in mind and take it as part of the history. Um, it might make it a little bit harder for someone to kind of get a sense of kind of where they, where they want to go because there's layers to their experience. Um, Mike, do you want to kind of... Yeah, I, I, I've thought very much... I have met people and had those questions myself mm. and sometimes wondered, you know, is, is the... You know, I mean, that's what we sort of... I think we all accept that, you know, what makes us who we are is sort of nature-nurture kind of zeitgeist and the choices we make, you know, they're sort of some of the differentials. And um, I think, yeah, the way someone has, has experienced their early life has a huge impact. And uh, I think, you know, identifications, role models, anti-role models, um, all of that, you know, mm. helps to shape people. People are desperate when they come to seek treatment. And um, you need to recognise them as an individual and the trauma that they have in their history, but you also need to see what the treatment means to them and, and, and why it matters. It seems there's a contradiction in the idea of therapy and building trust on the one hand and then some of the barriers that are put in front of people. Can you comment on that? In, in, in I, th I, think the, I think the contradiction is not, in fact, a contradiction. The desperation that drives people to sort of conform to a narrative is evidence that that person needs to transition. For me, I was lucky to have a psychologist that, that, I, that I do trust, but I also found myself wondering what would happen uh, when I was honest with her. Um, and I was quite grateful to find that she was like, oh yeah, that's, that's normal. Um, I think that what would help the situation is if uh, psychologists were more upfront about the fact that there is no one narrative uh, for, for any trans person um, and that it's, it's okay to have doubts. That doesn't mean that you're not trans. And, and 
I don't know really of any people who are cisgender who have sat down for hours crying, wondering if they should be the other gender. I don't, I don't really think that happens. I'd say that person is trans. So I, I think those are the sorts of things that we need to be saying. Those are the sorts of things that are supportive. Uh, and I was just going to pick up um, and, and maybe just sort of question that, that uh, what that, that concept of, of therapy being about absolute trust because I think therapy in my opinion is like talking therapy anyway is to do with becoming comfortable with mixed feelings ambivalence ambiguities and you know you can never completely I mean you wouldn't really be wise to absolutely trust someone you know all of the time so um, yeah I, I see that it's a, it's a bit like anxiety you know the treatment of anxiety isn't to isn't to exterminate anxiety it's to enable the person to better tolerate anxiety. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a little bit the same. Yeah. And the, the, I think there is the contradiction in, in that the people who are supposed to provide the care and the therapy and stuff have historically been the ones that cause the damage. And I think that's just what everyone here has to, to, to work towards undoing and improving and healing. And I suppose there is a lot to be said for kind of just talking through the process with somebody, like the work the work I do is very relational, so it's um, about kind of like actually mapping out what the experience has been like up until now. And often people will use words like misunderstood, disconnected, not fitting in uh, with, with self or with uh, others and kind of finding a safe space. But most of the research is around sort of finding a safe space where people can feel validated, non-judged, all of that. Um, and in... To kind, of, to kind of feel sort of a, more of a connection and a space in the room where they can kind of actually have clients who will come like the only time in their week in their preferred um, kind of uh, gender, you know, in terms of how they're presenting. Um, and so a space to actually kind of explore that it might be the only place in the whole of the week um, that they can do that. I'd be really interested to hear a bit about the experience of parents, um, your experience of of how do families respond? How do they overcome um, perhaps their lack of knowledge or experience? Like, what, what do we know about families and how they support um, or don't well, <laughs> their family? Well, one, of the, one of the things that I constantly come up when I, when I see families together is the, you know, almost always the, the person or the child usually transitioning, um, however old the child might be, an adult or a teen child, their, their primary concern is the fact that they're inconveniencing the people they love. Um, I mean, there are others as well, but that seems to be a central pillar of, you know, terrible anguish. And then for the people they love, uh, the primary concerns are, you know, that their, their child is safe, happy, um, isn't going to regret this, um, yeah, has some sort of a sense that they know what they're doing and, and um, yeah, isn't going to be sort of socially um, rejected. Uh, and, and, you know, it's good to sort of bring those things up really explicitly. And um, usually, yeah, there's a sort of a catharsis that happens, that has to happen, because these sort of issues are often so delicate and so personal that they're quite outside of the normal realm of family conversations. And mm. they, they need to be sort of introduced. Um, and often doing it in a neutral, on a neutral territory can, can be very helpful. Yeah, it sort of helps. A few clients come out as trans in the room, um, and that's been quite an experience. I remember the first time 
um, sitting with someone in that and then kind of freezing and speaking for them as best I could. Um, one of the things I think that's really important when speaking to parents and please again chip in is like this, uh, um, well, parents are really concerned. They're often a bit sort of, sometimes it makes perfect sense what's been happening and um, other times they'll want to kind of um, just want it to all go away. And the message being really clear to parents, I think that kind of ignoring it will not make it go away. So I think when, when speaking with parents, I, I'm pretty clear about what my assessment is of what's happening with their, their child and also um, some of the kind of implications of it's kind of left. And I've unfortunately had clients where parents have decided to withdraw their child from my care because they feel like I'm kind of pushing hormone treatment on them, which um, was not the case. Um, as a way of kind of protecting the family from from some of that, that um, I don't know, exposure or um, ev evolution in self for the young person, and that's quite hard to see. I think you know. So that, yes, there's some great stories where they they hear and they'll take it on. Other times it's sort of left, um, and for a 12 or 13 year old, that's pretty tough because they're not good. They can't access care without consent. No, to go. Yeah. No. Yeah. The best thing I ever saw on, on parents and accepting uh, was in Andrew Solomon's Fire from the Tree. It's actually mm -hmm. quoted in Benjamin Law's quarterly essay um, where there's a father. It's, just, it's, it's being told from the perspective of a father and he says he was with his child with a, a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist said, um, does it make your child happy to refer to them as she? And he said, yes. Does it make your child unhappy to refer to them as he? And he said, yes. And then the psychiatrist said, what is more important than your child's happiness? And that for him was his sort of breakthrough moment. Um, but I think like from my experience and friends and stuff that like all too often it just comes down to this, do you want a dead kid or a happy kid? And it, it's horrible. That's kind of where it, where it sort of seems to go, um, because it's so transgressive to be trans. <laughs> and, and actually, someone who I saw introduced me to, the, to this idea quite closely linked to what Kai just said is, is um, um, you know, the, the people around you, uh, family or, or even partner, they have to attend the funeral before they can join you at the birthday party. And mm. I think it's... I, I, it's such a surreal experience to talk to people like your family that love you and care about you about you as if you are dead you know my my sister was saying i loved her i loved my sister she was great um and, and i'm there i'm right here you know and and it's that kind of notion of um you know, some things are going to change, some things are going to be just as they are. My value system hasn't particularly, might not particularly change, yeah. you know, and my personality is pretty much as it was. <laughs> um, and I'm going through some hormonal changes right now. So, yeah, yeah like... I, I certainly had, I had some feelings like that too. And I think for the individual, that's a, it's an important thing to realise is that it's not only, like you were mentioning, that that uh, a lot of people feel feel guilty about what, what it's going to do to their family if they transition... And also, I felt guilty about the guy I used to be. He was a nice guy. Like, and he had a girlfriend and he had a life. And he didn't deserve to die. And I sometimes feel like I killed him. Um, or he sacrificed himself so that I could live. 
And that's a very unusual form of guilt to feel. <laughs> I think there's a fear of the unknown um, that, that takes place. There's a gr real grief period that people, you know, we, usually when you mention grief, people nod and go, yes, that's what, it, that's what I'm feeling, it's grief. So there's a grieving process. And there's also a coming out because um, families have to come out too. They have to come out as parents of a trans person and, and to their friends and to their grandparents. And it, it, you know, increasingly I, I, I see people who have just sort of blown away by the success and just how incredibly accepting people are once they kind of come around and get their head around it. But, um, yeah, it involves all of that. Yeah. Well, that's a happy note for us to finish on today. How quickly does the time go? Please join me in thanking our amazing panel for tonight. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.